Hey guys, what's up? It's Cody with the Do Work Podcast, episode 12. Yo, it's Steven. What a great guest we got going on here, Steven. Yeah, definitely. And he brought up some things that I was very familiar with, but hadn't thought of in that way. One of them being the first priority of the fire service at every department in the country and in Canada. I didn't forget about you Canadians. And that is life safety. It should be the first priority of every fire department in the world, correct? Yes, I'll even say the world. The whole world. We're going international. We all share the same priority of life safety. Now, whose life are we talking about? With all these safety mandates, it seems like it's us. Which, I mean, isn't bad. There are good safety mandates out there that protect firemen from getting hurt and dying, and which we need to take a look at, but we still don't need to place ourselves before them. Correct? Yeah, and I'm sure you've heard from other groups who've started the term for them. That's something, in my opinion, that, I mean, we shouldn't have even had to say. This is something that maybe firefighters are forgetting, but whenever you join a fire department, that feeling you had right before, whenever you were getting your training, that you wanted to join the job for them, for the people, for the public. You're thinking of your mom, your dad, grandma, grandpa, boyfriend, girlfriend, Kids, if you got kids, I don't have any, so I don't know what that's like. But you think about them, and that's why you got into this job. Yeah, you wanted the excitement. Yeah, the schedule sounds cool. The pay and benefits, it varies from department to department. But overall, we live a pretty good life. I'm not saying we're going to get rich off of this, and I don't think anyone ever should expect that. But the overwhelming motivation for folks getting into the fire service, usually, typically, is them. Well, just do do me a, a solid right here, everybody listening. Just close your eyes and remember back to when you were first, you first got selected or you first even decided to apply to the fire department. What was your reason? I had no idea about the pay, nor did I care. I had no idea about vacation or sick leave or anything like that. I had no idea about any of it. I didn't know the schedule. All I knew is they were there all the time. You were with your brothers doing work, and that's I wanted that, but I, the majority of the reason I wanted was to help people. I didn't care if it was medical calls. I didn't care if it was fires. I wanted to help people. I thought instead of increasing somebody's bottom line and making money for a company or anything like that. I was working at a good job. I was working at a manufacturing plant that manufactured oil field. I left that to join the fire department because I wanted to do something bigger than myself. I wanted to actually make a difference in somebody's life. And that's why we all got in it. And for some reason, somewhere along the way, I don't know where and I don't know how. I went to the fire academy and on the board was line of duty deaths. Every day we erased a number and put one up. I say every day, almost every day we erased a number and put a number up, but we never talked about how it was line of duty deaths. In my academy, I, all I could think of was these guys were out there and they were doing searches and they were on roofs and they were doing all this stuff and that's how they died. They never told us how they died. They never told us it was heart disease. They never told us it was cardiac arrest on the fire ground. They never told us about the cancers. They never told us about the wrecks, wrecks to and from fire scenes. Some of this stuff can be prevented. Yes, get your fat ass up and start doing some cardio. Do something and, I mean, drive safer. I mean, we still go code three to calls and you can't predict everything that somebody's going to do in a vehicle in front of you. 
Every light and every siren can be blaring, and you still don't know what they're going to do. They can slam on their brakes. Put your freaking seatbelt on, though. That's one thing you can control, period. You can control that. Decon your gear. There's so much stuff that we can prevent, but there's a lot of things that we can't. Yeah. You can do everything right and still end up dead in this job. And whenever the safety initiatives start affecting the way your crew works, and if it takes away from the public the them that we mentioned, the them that you see on the stickers and the T-shirts and taught by instructors around the country, when it starts affecting them and their safety, then we need to take a really hard look at that particular initiative. Never will I put myself in front of them. And when I was a rookie, I heard it from some senior guys. So don't don't put this as a generational thing. Don't say, well, the millennials started doing this because they're entitled or whatever. No, because there's guys above me that have more experience and that are a lot older than me that told that words come out of their mouth and they said, well, we didn't start their fire. I'm not going to get killed with something I didn't do. Why are you in this job? And for those of you who listen to this podcast while you're driving, you can go ahead and open your eyes now. Hopefully you didn't kill anybody. Yeah. Sorry about that if you're driving. <laughs> Cody forgot to tell you to open your eyes. Yeah. So if you wrecked, it's not on me. It's on you. That's why you got insurance. <laughs> <laughs> So the next guest that we have on, really big name. He was a big influence for me, a role model uh, that I look up to still today. And I'm not glorifying him. Yeah, you were. Maybe a little bit. Maybe there's a little man love worship going on. I wish anybody on. could have seen Steven before we did this interview. It was, it, was, it was cute. I wish anybody looked at me like Steven does Brian. His talk at FireX Talk was the first video I saw as a rookie, and it kind of opened my world to the whole, you can listen to people talk about firefighting activities that don't always have to do with leadership, that are like things that I can start doing right now as a grunt with the nozzle. There are people up there talking, and there's people like me listening, and I'm, I remember sitting my entire crew down and making them watch. Like, this is what I want to be. This is what I want to do. This guy has his shit straight. We need to go and be like this. This is how we need to approach the fire ground. This is how we need to approach fire attack. And this is how we need to approach rescue. What he was doing was putting them first. And that was the first time I'd heard that message. And it made me kind of sit back and think, is that what we're doing here? And if, if we're not, or if it's second or third on down the list, why? That for them isn't a relatively new term. We, it just never had a name. Because firemen never had to put a name on it because they automatically knew it was for them. I'm telling you, I don't know where it happened. And if you know, message me because I need to learn about when this started. When we had to make stickers that say for them. Every single plugged in fireman is talking about it. Every chief that's on social media is talking how it's for them. I don't know where we got away from that. Yeah, the phrase for them isn't what we're calling into question. We're calling in the reason why we have to say that because that opens up a much darker little pocket in all of us. And that is, what did we lose along the way? When did we stop putting the citizens that we swore to protect? When do we put them in the back seat? The job is dangerous. Yes. The job is high temperatures that typical humans don't survive in. The the that we're given the gear, we're given the tools, we're given the strategies and tactics and the fire science. We're the experts when it comes to a fire, and they're not. They're the ones in there 
Possibly, potentially. If they are, I want to make sure. I want to do a thorough sweep. I want to search correctly. I don't want to do a search that's really not effective, and yet we called it a search just to tick off a box because the people are the priority. Where did we lose that? Where did we decide that it was up to us if a victim was going to survive or not? Where did we get the audacity to be able to stand outside and look at a structure and be like, nope, they're gone. You don't get to say that. VES is not a off whiz bang bullshit tactic that come out of nowhere. Firemen have been doing this for years and years. We just decided to put a name on it now. We had to create this nice little acronym and then somebody was like, hey, look at this. Well, it's been around forever. You got a room and contents fire on this side of the structure that's ripping and getting. Well, guess what? You're not VESing in that room. You're VESing on the side that's unburned. Yeah, and that's the thing. we got to be very careful with what we say on the radio, too. Fully involved to one department or one captain who has X amount of experience might be different from fully involved to a captain in FDNY. And that comes from experience because as a, as a new step-up officer, I did that. I mean, I was, I'm just a, I was a driver at the time stepping up to captain, and we pulled the structure fire, and it was ripping and getting. So on the radio, I said fully involved when it was literally just a room and contents fire. Just from that side of the structure I was looking at, it vented through the roof. It was it was a pretty good fire, just room and contents. To all of the officers on the line out there, I don't want you to think that I'm downplaying or that we're downplaying your concerns for your guys. I just want you to, I'm not going to make you close your eyes again, but definitely think about this. I want you to, to think about the guys who are on your crew, the guys and gals, and yourself. And yeah, who's this guy? Who's this two-year, three-year firefighter telling me what to do? But just bear with me for a little bit. Safety is a priority. Yes. Everybody goes home. Great. That's obviously something that we really want to strive for. But we can't erase the fact that this job does have inherent risks. And what's the best way for combating those risks? Training. Training your people. Making sure that you can rely on your rookie firefighter to do the things that you expect your rookie firefighter to do without holding his or her hand. Same thing with your driver. Same thing with yourself. You're not going to take all the hazards out of this job. You can't just take and just throw safety on everything like, oh, we're going to make this the safest thing out there. Don't leave the station then. Don't go to the call. What you do as a company officer and coming from a guy who's not a company officer, but I have led men in very dangerous situations. Whenever you do that, you can't take the, all the risk out of it. You mitigate what risks you can and you address the hazards and you try to control the risks. And the best way to go into these situations is by having a well-trained crew, by having people that you, like I said, trust. Trust is such a big thing in this job that you trust to be able to vent the roof or to set up the PPV fan properly or to go in and make a great attack or to force entry while your line is putting fire out from the outside. And that comes from you as the officer and you as the fireman and you as the driver training each other and training yourselves to the point where those hazards aren't necessarily hazards anymore. Yes, they're risks, but you've trained yourself to be competent in those risks that when they do occur, you know what to do. We started this podcast as a way to learn from fire service professionals, to learn from well-known people and not so well-known people. Everybody has a voice on this podcast. And I just want you guys to know 
that Cody and I getting on these soapboxes and, and giving this stuff. I mean, yeah, we're not officers. We're not somebody who's taught at this conference or that conference. Why are you listening to us, right? Like, why, why should I have to hear Stephen and Cody tell me how to do this or that this should be a priority versus that? This podcast has really helped us grow in our fire service. We felt this desire to bring something to the fire service in any way that we could. And we really want to see other people do the same thing in whatever way or shape or form that takes. And we really appreciate it. I mean, at least a few of you like us. And we definitely appreciate all the support that you guys give us. And hit us up on any of our social media accounts, man. We're quick to respond. We love hearing from any. Don't think you're a nobody in the fire service. You have something to say. You've seen something. You've experienced something. Even if it was one fire, you might have questions about what you've done and what you've seen. That's what we have here. We have an open platform that two guys can get on here and talk about their experiences and listen and get good guests and listen to those guests. And we learn so much from our guests and from talking to guys all around the nation. And it's it's just been a true blessing to have this podcast and to listen to the guys and learn from the guys that we've get on on these episodes. If you are out there listening to this and you want to do something Definitely do it. Go out there. Don't be afraid. If it paints a target on your back, so be it. Embrace it. Embrace the the suck, I think, as the military say, and keep going on in your quest for more knowledge. Ask the whys. Get as much information from your senior folks, the, the guys who've been there, done that. Pick their brains. And enough about us, I think, at this point. I think you've heard us ramble a good amount of time. Now back to the man crush that I have for our guest. Our guest is uh, a brother in battle. If you're plugged into the fire service, you've probably heard his name. Heck, you may have seen him speak. Our guest is Brian Olson. And Stephen has a man crush. And Brian Olson lifts really heavy things. And in this episode, we delve into the whys of lifting rocks, among many other things. Get ready to listen to Brian the Ogre Olson. Yeah. <laughs> So what's up, everybody? This is Steven with the Do Work Podcast. Hey, what's up, guys? It's Cody. Today we got a sweet guest. Awesome, badass guest. We got Brian Ogre Olson. Brian's a firefighter at Eagle Fire Department in Idaho. He's been there 10 years. Brian is currently assigned to Truck 41 because he couldn't make it as an engine guy. <laughs> Brian's a lover of all things flannel. On a typical day, Olson has up to five layers of flannel on. He's been mistaken as a mobile Duluth trading distributor. Brian is a man's man. I mean, if you can't tell by now, this dude's a man's man. He picked up a dead deer carcass off the side of the road in front of a church and harvested its organs and meat. When we, we reached out to Chuck Norris, and he told us that he saw Brian literally pick up Mount Rushmore. He made entry into a fully involved commercial structure and rescued a whole orphanage of baby kittens, then cracked open and downed 15 stones right there in front of him. When Chuck Norris calls you a badass, you're a badass, Brian. Brian's also an instructor for the kick-ass training organization, Brothers in Battle. What's up, Brian? How's it going? Oh, it's going, man. I'd like to know who you got that fucking bio from <laughs> so I can oh. pay him a visit. <laughs> hey, hey, you know, you know, when you get it from Chuck Norris, you get it from Chuck Norris. He made me feel guilty. He was like, uh, you, why don't you do the fucking homework then? Yeah, he's, ni- he's nitpicking at all my shit. And I was like, fuck you then, do you yourself. All right, apparently I'm the world's greatest redneck. That's hey, awesome. hey you, know, you know it works, brother, it works. There's rednecks in Idaho. That's right. How you doing, man? I'm good. How How's the weather guys? in Idaho? 
it's all right. It's a little chilly. It's pretty cold. Below freezing. So typical January in Idaho. So from the get-go of this interview, I screwed up the time zones. So yeah, this whole yeah, yeah this, this whole time I thought you were an hour ahead of us. You're an hour behind us. Yeah. All day long. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, to be honest, I have no idea what time it is in Texas. I just took the opportunity to make fun of you that you didn't know what time it was in Idaho. <laughs> yeah, Stephen's been loving it too. He's been having a great time with it. He made yeah. me finish up at the bar early. Said we were going to be late. Made me feel bad. And then we're into the traffic jam, and he calls yeah. you. And, and then yeah. I, when I heard you say what you said about being an hour behind, I was like, "The Mother. look on his face." <laughs> but well, it sounds like it was time to leave the bar anyway, or we wouldn't be doing this interview. Yeah, so. Stephen would be nine night sleepy time right now. <laughs> yeah, his uh, his his tab was what, hundred bucks? Yeah, it was a hundred bucks. <laughs> oh jeez! And it was before yeah. six thirty. <laughs> I was like, okay, now it's yeah. time to go. Yeah. But this is the first night of the uh, symposium that we're at that we actually drank alcohol. We stayed sober, studied, went to all the classes. Um, we were good made the boys most for of it. a little Yeah, that's good. That's good. I wish I could say the same in my conference experiences, but not quite. Yeah, the the conventions, the firefighter conventions we've been to, it's not been like that. It's It's been a... It's like a contest. Yeah. Like you, every new guy that's their first conference, like, oh, that's all we do is drink. Like, you got to go to this room and this room and right. this room. and yeah. Like you're gonna little, you're gonna learn just a little bit at the class itself, but you, that's just kind of why you're there. Afterwards, when we get drunk and drinking on all night, that's where you're gonna learn. Yeah, I, I, I know that. I know that game for sure. So, so Brian, tell us about who you are. Um, we know you work for Eagle Fire Department. Uh, tell us how you got started as a firefighter. Uh, well, I, uh, I started like you said uh, about ten years ago, and I was. Uh, failed baseball player that's about all i cared about for the first oh probably 20 years of my life was playing baseball and turns out i wasn't good enough to make a career of it so uh i was working construction with my family business at the time and we did excavation work and we were working for a guy and he had a nice house and a hummer and all this and i asked my dad i go what does this guy do for a living he goes oh he's a firefighter and I go, no kidding, he's a firefighter, huh? And then that's kind of that's where it started, and which was a very, uh, he was actually a, a fire chief, so I, I kind of got misled on how much money you actually make. You got a little mis a misled there, buddy. Yeah, for sure. I was like, oh, he's got a Hummer and a Oh, nice my God, look at this place. For him, and yeah, so I kind of got duped in that respect. But uh, I started looking into it, and I had never, I was not one of those guys who, uh, as a kid, you know, was thinking about being a fireman. I'd never thought about it my entire life and, and kind of got led into it. And once I started Eagle at the time, had a volunteer program, we don't anymore. I became a volunteer and within the first week, I kind of knew that this was something that I was probably going to be cut out for. So started volunteering at Eagle and I was a volunteer for just under three years before I got hired there. It wasn't one of those lifelong dreams for me. It, it was something that I honestly believe just because of my, not to get into a bunch of spirituality stuff, but, but just because of my faith, I feel like I kind of got led into, and I actually have it written down in my journal that that was kind of the direction it was going to go. So it's kind of cool to look back on it and be like, oh, I wasn't really prepared for this, but God doesn't always call the prepared. He prepares those who are called. So Exactly. Yeah. I think I, we can relate to that. Neither Cody or I planned on a 
job as a firefighter. I mean, that's something we came up yeah. later on in life. But really happy we got here. It's the best job in the world. You have a ton of passion for the job. You kind of kick-started the passion for me. I, me and Cody were talking earlier. When I was in the fire academy, everybody was so gung-ho. Everybody was so excited. We all had the same dream. We all saw ourselves in a station one day working as a firefighter climbing on that rig. And so morale was high and there was the deadlines and everybody was studying and helping each other out and trying to accomplish this goal. And then you get to the fire station and you realize that not everybody there has that same drive or that same passion that you got in the academy. I was under the impression that everybody thought this was the best thing ever. And then you get there and it's not that. And so I was feeling kind of down and I stumbled upon FireX talk and Michael Snodgrass and his aggressive firefighter talk and your search culture talk. And I remember sitting my entire crew down one day for supper and I was like, we're not going to do anything but watch this video and you guys are going to tell me what you think. And (laughs) I don't know what all everybody took from it, but, but that's something that I showed a ton of people and I knew that I didn't have to be as complacent as these guys like I could drive I could have this drive I could try and be a better firefighter and take the flack and it's fine because this is something that I really love and this is something that I want to dedicate my life to becoming better at and seeing other people around the country have that same drive was really positive for me yeah I mean uh <laughs> yeah that fire x talk was kind of similar I walked around all day uh drinking whiskey before i did that one too there you go i'm pretty nervous about that whole that whole deal and that was uh, a damn good talk so this ought to turn out pretty badass right that was also a surprise to me but uh you quickly kind of learned the fire service is kind of a a microcosm of the country in general all the same things that we have happening around the country you have within the fire service itself so you have people that are complacent They might not even really like the job, but they like the pay or the time off or whatever. And it's really difficult if you kind of find a passion for it and you start to wonder why doesn't everyone feel the same way. And that can be really challenging. I know it was for me, but in the end, you kind of just, at least for myself, I kind of realized not everyone is going to be passionate about this, you know, for 48 hours straight. I work a 48 hour uh, schedule. But if we can kind of ignite that passion for maybe a percentage of that time, maybe that's a win, you know? And it's just, you can't force people to be passionate about something they're not passionate about. All you can do is kind of, we can control ourselves and continue to try and be an example of what we feel like is a good firefighter and then just hope that kind of ignites something in people as we move along. That's all I've really uh, tried to do. And what you're doing is awesome, man, because what really scares me the most I think is thinking about guys who possibly had the same passion we have, who've been in for 25 years and some way, somewhere along the way they lost it and it stayed lost. And that's what I think is awesome about what y'all are doing with brothers in battle and y'all are putting out content and you're putting out videos. And the one thing that with our podcast is what I'm hoping is doing is is reigniting some of those passions that people Mm -hmm. lost talking with other firemen and they're like man you know we listened to this episode it kind of kicked us in the ass and now it reignited us and i mean that's that's young firemen too that kind of got a little complacent along the way but whenever they tell us you know it was your podcast which you know kicked me in the ass and it started up i guarantee the brothers in battle and the stuff that y'all are putting out has done that across the country yeah the fire department is kind of a 
a professional at killing people's passions most of the time. They're really good at it, whether it's the administration or the line guys. Yep. For whatever reason, it seems like a lot of times firemen who are passionate about the job and, and wanting to um, just kind of share knowledge or share things they've learned going to conferences or whatever, the fire department is really good at just squashing that. And like you said, there are some firemen I've seen that they just get browbeaten until they just say, you know what, I don't care anymore. Like the first five years of their career, they were super passionate. And then the next 10 to 15, they're just like, well, why should I care? Because I know anything I'm going to do isn't going to get recognized by the administration or they're not going to do anything to help me kind of make those positive changes. And so that can be really difficult. And that's kind of where I see if you're able to sustain that passion and kind of capture those people that maybe have 15, 20, 25 years in and kind of reigniting them, asking them what their opinion is. What do you think about this? There are ways to kind of reignite their passion for the job that maybe the administration or whatever is kind of quenched over the years. And I've seen that in my own department for sure. And so that just, again, all boils down to us having accountability of ourselves and kind of keeping that fire lit as well as we can. And there are times in my own career, I have ups and downs where you know, for six months, I'll be like totally on fire for the fire service. And then I'll get distracted with some other obsession. And I'll be like, I'm really into rafting or stone lifting or whatever. You can just look at my social media and tell that and be like, that is my driving passion. And then something catches me from somewhere else that kind of gets me back into that fold. So I'm, I'm not going to sit here and pretend like, 24 7 365 all i'm thinking about is firefighting because that's not true it just isn't and so i have these own waves in my own career and i think a lot of people are probably similar it's just a matter of us staying connected and being aware of the stuff going around us because we'll see something that's like oh that's really good and that kind of reunites that fire in us to try and do that yeah i can definitely relate to that i also have hills and valleys same thing you're yeah. talking about you know, I'll go a certain amount of time just reading everything, soaking up all this knowledge, and then I'll just quit and I'll focus on mm -hmm. something else. And I think that's right. natural. I think, like you said, as long as you have that connectivity, you have fellow brothers and sisters who will check in every once in a while and kind of pull you back in or you see something new that drags you back in, that's good. And you kind of have to take a step out of your life every once in a while and reevaluate and kind of look from – from a bird's eye view at what you're doing, where you're at, where you want to be, and what you're doing to get there. And that also yeah. helps bringing you back into the, the fold. And we have family, we have friends, we have a social life. We Sometimes have, you have to take a break from fire. You have other hobbies. Mm -hmm. And like Cody's a big fantasy football player. He runs a uh, his own business. He's got two ankle biters that are wild. <laughs> yeah, 10 and 8. Whew. Yeah, I got the same thing. They're right outside this room, like, playing video games right now. Oh, yeah. I'm sure that's what mine are doing. But, I, I mean, sometimes you have to you have to take a break from fire. I know I can guarantee you're, like, you're more than, like, what we are. I mean, we can relate to what, what you are doing. I mean, with Brothers in Battle, you're probably everywhere, plus fire department, your own fire department, and 24-7, seven days a week of fire, fire, fire. It's yeah. always on my mind. I'm like that, too. And in 2019, I, I've decided I'm going to make it better. You know, I'm going to put my family first. I'm going to focus a little less on fire this year. I mean, it's I can't get rid of it completely. It's it's always on my of brain. Of course not. 
I did the same thing this last year. I made a promise to my kids that I would only do one out of town conference. And so the year before I had gone to and taught at Art of Firemanship, FDIC, all these places. And then this 2018, I said, I'm only doing one. And I went to the uh, firemanship conference that we do in Portland. That was my one out of uh, state conference that I taught at. And I didn't do any other ones except the local one here in Boise. And it was for that very reason is that there's this balance of those are all good things like brothers in battles at the point now where we, we could teach out of state, either Oregon and Idaho or Washington, like every month if we wanted to, that's how many small conferences are popping up. But a lot of us have little kids and it's really difficult. And the reality is, is I could go to all those conferences across the country and teach. And that's a good thing. It's a positive. It's, it's a good experience for me. I always learn stuff from people from around the country and it's good to get out there and kind of spread, uh, you know, our gospel, you know, so to speak. But in the end, if my kids think I'm an asshole, it probably wasn't worth it. Exactly. You know what I mean? So it's like that balance is so difficult. And my good friend that I work with, Steven Tyler, him and I have talked about this a lot of like, a lot of the people that we look up to on the fire service side don't necessarily have like a great family structure because it's like you almost have to choose if you're going to become this like amazing fire service legend or whatever, something has to give, you know, and that's what I find with all those obsessions that I have. Like, it's not a bad thing to go around and teach all the time, but something is that's taking away time from something. And so I haven't quite figured out that balance yet, and I don't know what it is, but I know both sides of the coin are good. It's just like, how do you weigh the scales? And it's, uh, it can be a difficult thing for sure. This year is the most conferences that I've attended in my career. 2019 is going to be busy for me going to conferences and such, but I want to focus more when I'm at home to be actually be at home. Yeah. When I'm home, I'm, I'm always got my face in a book. I'm either I'm reading something, something fire service related, but I want to be more at home when I'm home. Yeah. And it, it, that's a good thing. I think it's difficult to do because it's hard when you're passionate about it. It's hard to flip the off switch. Like I have a really hard time. <laughs> I'm very lucky the wife and kids that I have because my personality in general, whether it's fire service or picking up rocks, or rafting or climbing mountains or whatever like i get stuck on these things and i'm very obsessive uh yeah they're probably more understanding than they uh you know that they have than they have to be my wife set me down once and she was like you have to pick two hobbies that's it yeah right you can't have 3500 hobbies and try to do them all exactly yeah for sure so i haven't figured out that balance but I do believe there is a way to be a good family person, husband, wife, mother, father, and a good firefighter, and still be able to make a difference, at least for a small amount of people. I just haven't figured out where all those percentages go. And social media helps out a lot, too. I mean, we can put out content that's like what we're doing now. You're at home, we're yeah. in a hotel, but I mean, we can still put out content, take yeah. an hour out of your time, but you're still at home, and it still affects other people's lives in the fire service. I mean, they're going to listen to this and hopefully they take out a great message that you're going to provide because we're not going to do it. And <laughs> they, I don't know about that. <laughs> and uh, just take it and run with it. So, I mean, if we can affect change in the fire service, even, we got too much technology not to use it. Right. Exactly. I agree. 
So let's kind of switch gears a little bit. Uh, you mentioned lifting rocks. Chuck Norris saw you lift Mount Rushmore. I want to hear about that. Yeah. <laughs> and action. Yeah, I, I pick up rocks a lot. I pick up stones a lot. And it was kind of this, oh, it's been, I guess, probably about 16 months ago, Josh Webb who uh, is it, you know, I've never met Josh in person, but we're Facebook friends and he works for Louisville. He shared an article from Mark Ripitel called Conditioning is a Sham. I go, that's kind of interesting. So I read this article and it definitely sucked me in of like, at that time I was, uh, I guess, 34 years old. And I, I've been lifting since I was 14 years old, and it was all for baseball or whatever. I lifted for a sport, basically. And then I got to my 30s, and I was like, well, I guess I'm at that point in my life where I just don't want to get hurt. That was kind of my mentality of, like, I just don't want to get hurt. I'll kind of do whatever. And so I got to this point where I was only lifting weights at work. When I was off work, I didn't have a gym membership. I didn't do anything. I only lifted when I was at work. And then Josh shared that article, and I kind of had that one of those moments where you look in the mirror and you go, I have these conversations with myself often, and it's like, you know what, you're being a bitch about this. Yeah. Like, and it was a very strength-based article, and I was like, I don't approach anything in my life this way, with this kind of wishy-washy, oh, I just don't want to get hurt kind of attitude. And I had this like kind of self-reckoning of, this is not what you should be doing. <laughs> And so I started the uh, Starting Strength program. If you guys have heard of that, it's a super basic program. And I think actually Mark Ripito is in uh, Wichita Falls, Texas. That's where his gym is. But it's very basic squats, deadlift, bench, overhead press. And that's basically all you do. So I started this strength program and built up a decent amount of strength in about four months. And then switched to that program and I started doing strongman stuff because the gym I went to had it and they had yokes and farmers carries and all these crazy things, Atlas stones, you know, all this stuff that I had never really used in a gym before. And I kind of really gravitated to that. And so I started doing that type of training. And what I noticed very quickly is it transferred over to the fire service very well, especially the stone aspect to it. So I did some strongman competitions and and did fairly well for myself. And I'm a naturally pretty competitive person. Most people see it and they go, oh, well, Brian just wants everybody to be kind of a strongman competitor. And that's not it at all. That's just kind of my nature. But I really think in the fire service, our workouts should be strength-based. They need to have cardiovascular stuff. They need to have flexibility and mobility, all that. But the backbone of it really should be strength-based because a lot of the things we do, whether it's a fall patient or dragging a victim out of a building or moving hose or throwing ladders, those are all really strength-based activities. They're not a 5K, just for example. Oh, I mean, they're short-duration, explosive strength movements. So what I saw from the strongman was that transfer over very well, and then now kind of given my personality, I found an even smaller niche of like stone lifting. And the, the thing I've seen about stone lifting, natural stones, atlas stones, is that rocks don't like to be picked up ever. And they're built like in this way that they defy being lifted off the ground. And I was like, you know, human bodies are kind of the same way. Uh, you go to pick up a fall patient, which we do at my department regularly, and they don't want to be picked up. Like, or you go have an unconscious person or a victim in a fire, they are not an easy thing to move. 
and stones are the same way and so again i'm seeing even a greater transition over to that with the stone lifting and just frankly my personality i really like the historic part of it i really like the fact that now i can like walk 10 minutes from where i'm sitting down to the river and there are rocks there and i can pick them up and have some kind of a workout i don't need to go to a gym i don't need to do anything if i have some rocks laying around like I can actually get a, a decent workout that kind of translates over to the fire service. So yeah, it's been kind of an interesting journey, one that I didn't really necessarily see myself in, but the transfer over has been uh, noticeable for sure. So by picking up these stones, how many YouTube videos have you looked on geology? Like I'm, I'm on theology, <laughs> on geology. <laughs> oh, geology. <laughs> You're probably like a stone Not expert that. by now, reading all the different <laughs> no, types well, of rock formations and yeah. I'm trying. I'm not very good at that. I'm trying. Uh, Steven, my, my buddy Steven he, Tyler, he's much better at that than I am. But I'm I'm getting there. I can tell the difference between basalt or granite or whatever. But I definitely need to up my geology game there, for there sure. There you go. I just look at it and be like, that one looks pretty fucking heavy. I'm <laughs> pick that one up. <laughs> I'm just saying, I go to a gym and they have the lifting stones there. The first yeah. time I go, I might not pick it up. Yeah. But I'm definitely looking at it, and I'm I'm like yeah. looking it over, like how am I gonna do this? Yeah. The second well, time, I'm picking it up <laughs> yeah. somehow. There are guys on my job that for sure they're waiting for my back to explode. Oh, they just like, want, they're just that, wanting to. Oh, just, they're just waiting. If I if I end up a quadriplegic, it'd probably be the best day of their life. Man. They're gonna be like, be we like, told, I told you, you so. we told you. There's probably a bet going on right oh, yeah. now. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm sure there. I'm sure there is. But the funny thing is, is I don't. After all, the strongman, the stone lifting stuff, and just the weightlifting in general, like the number one injury in the fire service besides hurt feelings is back injuries. Oh, you know, like so that. it's like I feel my back feels strong. I don't go into situations anymore and be kind of nervous. Like the, just a couple of days ago, we had a, just a basic lift assist, non-injury, whatever. And this lady was a complete sweetheart, but she was probably... 400 plus pounds and before i would look at that and be like man i i don't you know i don't know you know you go in there with your crew and it's like you know it's going to be hard but now i don't hesitate at all and i'm not nervous at all and that's because i know my back is strong because of all the stuff that i've been doing it's like fire tactics like you go well we're not going to do ves because it's too dangerous well i'm not going to do deadlifts because i might hurt my back and i've hurt my back before that doesn't make sense to me. Like if we're going to do this, why don't we be proactive and make it better? Not avoidance is never the right approach, in my opinion. So whether it's lifting weights or tactics on the fire ground, and definitely not be scared of doing it. And, and if you're using safety as a thing, and well, I'm scared to work out because I could possibly get hurt. I mean, you I mean you've been there, and now you've made your body so much stronger that you're actually going to prevent injury because you've strengthened those muscles up. Well, and you do it the right way, too, because people are seeing you lift big stones right now. And you but, can't start out like that. Like, I'm not going to go uh, and try to pick up yeah. a big-ass rock like <laughs> Day one. Up. Yeah, because right. then I'll yeah. get hurt myself. You yeah, went you out be and, smart. and got yourself, your body built back up. You did these lifts, the squat, the press, deadlift, overhead press. You put in work to get to where you're at. And I think two often people are like it's a self-gratification monkey that steven likes i want to get there right now yeah i definitely didn't walk into the gym and pick up a 300 pound rock the first day it doesn't work that way 
Yeah, you look at it and you're like, oh, that's cool. And you, you see some other guy do it and you're like, oh, uh, yeah, I guess I'm just a pussy, I guess. I don't know, you know? <laughs> I'm going to come up to this 15-pound med ball. Right. But, I mean, that's with anything. I think that's a big reason why a lot of people avoid kind of the strength thing in the fire service is it's pride. We don't really want to know how strong we are. I can remember when, when I wasn't really training uh, aggressively. And be like, no, I'm strong. And then I go to do deadlifts when I start this program. I'm like, oh, I'm not really that strong. You know, it's kind of a big slice of humble pie. And I think uh, that prevents a lot of us from kind of venturing down that path because then we have to come face to face to the fact that we may be not as good as we thought we were. That can be a tough thing to overcome sometimes. Definitely. I remember going to the gym with a friend. Neither of us had lifted in a while, and we decided we'd start. And I had been lifting, I guess, a month or two more than he had. And we start doing the same weight, and he's struggling. And I, it's not a lot of weight. I mean, I'm, I'm not that strong. But he starts struggling, and as soon as he puts it up after not doing all of the reps, he's like, man, he just starts regaling me with stories of how strong he was right high school yeah. and it's like yeah. you yeah. can't look at it that way <laughs> no we're here yeah. now yeah. we got to start yeah. back at square one and we got to build ourselves up it's very rare to meet someone who wasn't strong in high school <laughs> i think we all were i remember the same thing i was like when i was in high school you know I, I did I'm this. I 10 times <laughs> as strong as i was in high school now yeah, yeah. and everybody right. was like this close to getting a college scholarship to playing ball like full ride oh for sure yeah i totally i totally get that for sure i'm not ashamed of admitting that when i was in high school i was a damn good swimmer by small town standards but i did not put in the work like when the coach was not looking i was not lifting weights those two days a week we had to lift weights i was hiding behind the tennis ball courts whenever we had to run <laughs> laps i waited for the last lap and then i started jogging you know so and i say those things to people because right now fitness is a priority and i do take it seriously and it is something that i dedicate x amount of time per day to go do and i make these sacrifices I'm happy to tell people that, yeah, I did not take this seriously back in the day. I This was not a priority for me back then, but it is now. And I know that maybe it hasn't been for you, but you can start right now. For sure. I mean, it's we like to call ourselves professionals in the fire service. I'm a professional firefighter. But like professional athletes, if they don't meet physical standards, if they don't perform well, they get fired. And it's pretty hard to fire a fireman most of the time. So it's like, if we're going to call ourselves that, that definitely pertains to our physical fitness, no question. So I'm, I don't expect everyone to be like a stone lifter or strongman or whatever, but just pick up something, pick up some kind of weight. Everyone has their own passion, whether it's running or lifting or bro lifting or strongman or whatever, but I think definitely we should kind of look at the responsibilities that we have on the fire ground and try to direct our fitness towards that a little bit, at least. And the endurance strength training, too, That I guess it's HIT is what it is. I've been doing uh, Dan Kerrigan and Jim Moss's functional fitness, and doing that kind of stuff is... I've been working out since I was in junior high. You know, I haven't stopped. In high school, I was thinking, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get a scholarship. So I busted my butt all through high school, had a kid at 17, can't play football when you got to pay for a baby. Yeah, right. So then I went I went to the Army, and guess what you're doing in the Army? Every single day, yeah. PT. Then I got out of the Army and got into the fire service. So PT has been a, a major part throughout my whole life, it seems like. And uh, I used to be a lot skinnier. 
things happened. You know, I got blown up. I got a little fatter. I like beers. <laughs> I definitely got the body that you can you can tell this guy likes tacos and cookies. Yeah. He ate two big ass cookies at the symposium today. <laughs> oh my! But you can tell that I'm I can do work too. Let me cut in. There's consequences to professional athletes not meeting standards. They're gonna get cut. And like you said, firefighters, it's really hard to get rid of a firefighter. Yeah, we can't just cut a firefighter because he's not performing, which, in all honesty, the citizens are paying for you to perform. They should be able to cut your ass if you're not fulfilling what they need. Yo, are you recording? Is this working? That was a great burp. Awesome. What? Awesome. There Fucking we go. Great. Fucking great. I always tell people, like, I got really into James Braidwood for a while, a dude from, like, uh, Edinburgh, England. Uh, he wrote a couple books back in the early 1800s with a lot of the stuff that we do now. And I'm like, I've never heard anyone reference him ever. So. All of us are posers, man. All of us are stealing <laughs> stuff. Even like dudes that are like amazing, like uh, Bob Pressler, Mike Lombardo, all these guys that are probably like the, the top guys around right now in experience, knowledge, everything. Like someone before them was doing the same thing. You know what I mean? And so there's this, there's this thing in the fire service where new people come out and kind of put out material or whatever, and there's this backlash. Because everyone wants to say, oh, they're just trying to copy someone else's whatever. And it's like, well, somebody started this all, and it wasn't anyone that's alive right now. Yeah, you're, we're, we're all copying it. That's just a fact, you know what I mean? So like when Aaron Field says, you know, try to cite, you know, your mentors or your references or whatever, and it gives you credibility. That's why is because no one who's alive right now invented any of this shit. It was somebody that was before. So, like, if we're getting credit to people that are, you know, in the fire service right now, uh, that's fine. But in reality, it's probably some dude from 150 years ago. That's just how it is. But when we don't kind of study history, we tend to have a very short-sighted view of what's going on, I think, sometimes. but I, I had a kind of an eye-opening thing, too, the other day, is I would look at the old books that are on the bookshelf, and kind of think to myself, and I, even out loud, I'd be like, oh, man, that's old material. I want the new stuff. I want the new books in. I want to learn about the new stuff today, like ReCOVS. Oh, wait. That came out in 1935 <laughs> yeah, when Lloyd Lehman right. wrote a book about it. <laughs> yeah, I was like, right. and that was my eye-opening. I was like, this is the same stuff. Yeah. And, the exact, yeah. and everybody's going back to this old stuff and pulling mm-hmm. it out. I was like, okay, well, now I'm going to move all these old books to the new bookshelf because they need to be read. Yeah, for sure. And it's definitely cyclical, you know, like to read in the 1820s that like, oh, you need when you go into a fire, you need to close as many doors as you can. And that'll help save more people. And you go, wait a second, that was 200 years ago. I thought that just happened, like, in the last yeah, five years. Yeah, they just come up with that recently. <laughs> they just came up with that. Oh, no, this dude's in another country is talking about that 200 years ago. And so it's kind of always when, uh, one of those humbling things. is like you try not to um, take credit for that work, and we're all just trying to pass it along so it doesn't die off. I mean, that's the real goal. 
that's what I like about the fire service. I mean, it's it's all about passing on the information. It's the information that's the key thing. It's not who said it or when they said it. I mean, you look at any other industry. You look at music, copyright law. You're going to get sued if you use this clip or whatever. Same thing with movies, names, trademarks. Okay, but the content that the fire service is spreading and that the people who are doing the podcasts and the conferences and the training programs... I'm sure it's in there. I'm sure there are people who would sue the crap out of you if you took something. <laughs> and that's bull crap, right. man. We're but, doing we're all doing this to make it better for everyone. But that's what I'm saying. Yeah. For for the most part from what I'm getting is that we don't have to worry about that because again, it's the content. Obviously give credit where credit is due. And most firefighters are humble enough to admit that yes, I wasn't the originator of this idea. But I think it's a good idea. And so I don't think enough people have heard this idea. So I'm going to be the one to stand up and start spreading it again. You know, dovetailing into the search thing is uh, the last few years I've traveled all over, you know, to almost every corner of the country. And I still run into people that were taught search the same way I was, which is like the elephant train. And you go, it's 2000. Now it's 2019. And there are still departments that are training that way. And we know that, uh, I don't know about you guys, but I've never done a search in a house where I was holding onto someone else's leg. Never. But that's how I was trained to do it. And and here's the wall. Don't let go of the wall. Yeah, there's still departments that are training that way. And uh, again, I, I just think uh, there there is uh, some thing in the fire service where people get really upset if like someone uh, uses an idea from someone else or whatever, like, we, at, at least at Brothers in Battle, I don't know how many times we've shared our PowerPoint and just say, use whatever you want. We don't want credit for it. We don't care, really. So, like, when I see a, a post on social media and I can tell just by the language used that that was probably something that came from one of my slides in the PowerPoint, I'm not going to get on there and be like, hey, you didn't give me credit for that. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, the message is what's important. The mission, like all of that, the information getting passed on, that's the reality is, like, I didn't come up with that better. So, like, as long as that message keeps getting passed along, that's what really matters. And search seems to be one of those things where I don't know if we can have enough people talking about it. So the more angles that we hit it from with different groups, different people around the country talking about how searches get performed on actual fires, and not how I was definitely taught when I started. Not uh, out of the, the IFSA manual, we'll but out of actual exactly. application. Yeah, because that's what it was for me is I learned search out of an IFSA manual. And I can remember my very first search drill I ever did very vividly. And I was holding on to someone's pant leg and we were crawling through like a, one of those wire box props and getting stuck and people were turning my air pack off turning the bottle off while i was searching and every time i would lose contact with their foot i'd be like where did you go and they'd be like i'm right here and like (laughs) we are not searching at all like that's a firefighter survival i'm gonna die drill and i can remember we found a dummy and then we were trying to get that dummy back through like that wire prop and everything and we didn't make it of course we ran out of air and I remember going down, uh, this is like in a mezzanine, go down the at bay, and I'm like, search is scary. 
I'm going to die and I'm not going to find anyone. That's That was my takeaways from my very first search show. Metallica music was blaring and that's exactly what we did. And I just thought, oh, I guess this is I'm how going out is. to no ride the lightning. <laughs> yes, exactly. And even if you do yeah. find the victim, you're going to yeah. run out of air. You're never exactly. going to make it out. It's sad, you're but true. You're never going to make it out. You're going to die. That's what I, I you're going to run out of air. Your bottles are going to get turned off, and you're going to die, and you're not going to save anyone. And I was like, well, and you're that's... going to fade to black. Yeah. Oh. yeah exactly. <laughs> Enter Sandman. <laughs> oh, that was terrible. I'm going to punch you, Cody, after this. I had to. I had to. Sorry. So, yeah, that was, uh, and it turns out, surprisingly, that's still going on all over the country. Because we, uh, Brothers in Battle, we travel around. And you think about the majority of the fire service is rural and suburban areas. And that's how most rural and suburban departments were taught how to search. And I think it was probably just a product of most of the urban areas that had very experienced firemen. And they had done a lot of searches. And so they knew how it was supposed to be. And people coming into those big, urban, busy departments probably got a little bit of a jump start on everybody else. Because if you're a suburban training officer or whoever's in charge of training a new volunteer class or new hires, and you've only been to a handful of fires in your whole career yourself, what do you have to base off? Well, you go, oh, I'll get this book and this book must do it the right way. And then you teach that book because you don't have a whole lot of experience yourself. And I can... You don't have a lot of budget, too. Yeah, exactly. You don't have a lot of budget, so you go, okay, here's this book. This is what we're going to do. We can afford this. We'll learn from this instead of going and seeing how it's actually done. Right. Or by people who are actually doing it. Exactly. At least in my own organization, I got taught to search doing the kind of conga line thing, and then I went to my first fire as a volunteer, and we got assigned search, and I remember being at the front door, and the other guy that I was with, the whole, like, never leave your buddy, he took off, and he was gone. And I was like, what the, what hell? the hell is happening right now? <laughs> Wait a second, where are you, you know? And it was just, like, this moment of, like, after the fire talking about it, it's like, no, we, that's not how we search. That's just how we teach you to search. Uh, so many departments go through that of, like, well, we teach you the book way so you can pass your fire one. And then when you come online, we'll teach you the real way to do it. And that is so frustrating for everyone involved, I think. It's just difficult. And that's definitely what my journey was like. Luckily, now we've changed that. And we don't use IFSTA. We don't use fire engineering. We use our own curriculum at Eagle Fire that we made. Because we just it's like, why would we spend months training someone to do something one way to pass a test? And then tell them, all right, forget all that. This is how we really do it, right? That is so unproductive. It's just kind of asinine that we still do that in the fire service so often. That's exactly what we do. Yeah. <laughs> exactly what we yeah, do. Yeah, I learned the, the conga line or whatever you want to call it in the academy and then get to my department and same thing. You know, guy breaks off. It's completely different. And I don't think we've done really – a search training just based on search where we can sit around and talk about the best ways and what works and what doesn't and how we really do it versus how the book says to do it. When I trained, we had two rookies and we took them to one of our stations that was closed down before it was a gym and we did search training. How I trained them was left hand search, grab yeah. his pant leg, 
Follow the wall. And that's the hardest thing is to like keep your hand on his boot or his pant leg and you're wearing a glove and you lose it like every other step. And what's going on? What am I now? I'm focusing focused on on searching. You're focused (laughs) on following him so you don't die. (laughs) You're searching for an ankle. That's 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 exactly. (laughs) You're not searching for any occupants. And then just the same thing. We don't do that in real life. Like that's not how it goes on a real fire. So instead of training them to how we actually do it, I I did the same thing, man. I'm guilty. So, Brian, let's dive into your curriculum. Okay. So, kind of what we do at Brothers in Battle with Cody Trestrail and the, the whole crew. And Justin McWilliams and I have a Facebook page, Search Culture, that we run. And Justin does most of the stuff on that. With the Firefighter Rescue Survey, if you guys are familiar with that, myself and Justin and Nick Ledeen and Trent Morrison and Shane Smith. But kind of what it was is, is just realizing that we'd been severely unprepared. And so when we realized, like, no, this is how we really do it, and we talk to people around the country, the guys who are, are searching buildings more than anyone else, that's all they've done their whole career. Guys like Cody, who, you know, with being in the FDNY and then coming back to Portland, I mean, Cody has a ton of experience and street credibility that my I definitely don't have. And so we kind of started meshing these things together and it's really about the mentality and everyone's probably heard it at this point but that kind of them mentality that cody definitely highlighted in his fire x talk and you've seen that it's kind of been interesting to see how that term in general has grown around the fire service and how much you see it being said now is kind of an interesting thing but basically it boils down to is if we really believe life safety incident stabilization, property conservation is like our mission as the fire department. If life safety is number one, are we as good at search as we tell the public we are? You know, because you ask a five-year-old, what do firefighters do? What do they say? They say they they save save people. people. Do we really train that way? Do we really prepare ourselves that way? And I think a lot of times maybe I don't know what time frame, but I can remember, at least in my career in 10 years, is like the mentality kind of swept the fire service where everyone goes home. And that was seen as like all firefighters go home. And firefighter safety is not a bad thing. I'm not against firefighter safety, but at some point that bled into our tactics. And we started thinking about ourselves more than we started thinking about the people that pay our salary or the people that we swore to protect as volunteers, we kind of shifted that paradigm a little bit to where we were going to fires. And as long as we didn't lose a firefighter, we did a good job versus we are going to fires to try and save the people who are trapped by a smoke and fire and save as much of their property as we can. So that paradigm shift is kind of what started our search curriculum and that being based with Cody Trustrail and Jesse Avery, who is another co-founder of Brothers in Battle Works for Vancouver. All that bled together and we wanted to create this search class where we were able to share our personal experiences of VES and split searches and just all the things that we encounter in the real world that the book almost never talks about and that goes all the way from mindset to thinking about if we go to a fire and we complete a primary search and the house burns down well at least we've accomplished our number one objective was to search for victims and i don't know how many fire departments think that way typically right if we do a primary search and the house gets turned into a parking lot we still accomplish our number one goal at least what we say it is which is life safety but a lot of times 
I think we get things flip-flopped a little bit. And you say, put water on the fire and it makes everything better enough times. And we just think that we just have to put the fire out and that's what really matters. When it's not, I don't think it's really that cut and dry because you can put water on the fire, but that doesn't do a whole lot for the person who is unconscious sucking the carpet, except maybe not get them burned. What they really need is to get pulled out of the building and get put into an ambulance. And that's what's really going to save them. So putting water on the fire, maybe it takes away the heat element, but it does not make everything better because their situation isn't necessarily better. They have to have medical treatment and that means we have to pull them out of the building. So it's not as easy as just like, just put water on the fire and everything will be better. And I think if that gets thrown around too much, that's when we start seeing fire departments only make attacks from the exterior and transitional attack is not a bad thing. It's a totally relevant tactic in a number of cases. But when you get to the point where you choose transitional attack over just a basic interior attack, because that's what you do, then you're really rolling the dice on whether or not there's a victim close to the entry point of the house. So with our search curriculum, we really hit the VES hard. I'm sure you guys have seen, like we do, you know, our VES beyond the door class that we've kind of been doing all over the country. And that really stems from Cody's experience in the FDNY where they search from windows on pretty much every fire. And a lot of times they don't have a choice because of the type of building construction that they have. And what we're really trying to do with search culture, brothers in battle, everything is kind of remove the scary part of VES because in reality, there's not a lot of data to back up that it's that dangerous of a tactic. There really isn't. I mean, I don't know a line of duty death attributed to vent enter search. I know of at least one or two attributed to doing a search from a window, which we have this separation between what VES is and what doing a primary from a window is. And in reality, they're the same thing. And I would even argue a lot of times searching from a window and searching from the front door are the same thing because on both of them, you're venting the building, opening the door, opening the window, you're entering and you're searching. So I kind of go, what's the difference when people go, well, VES is this high risk tactic. And you go, how is it any more high risk than going through the front door and searching? You're doing the same things, right? And a lot of times, at least in a VES, if you go into a room, hopefully there's a door to control that area. That doesn't mean there is, and a lot of times there isn't. There's too much shit in the way. There's no door. You VES the day room instead of a bedroom, but at least there's a chance when you enter from the front door, if that fire is out into the open space and a lot of the open layouts that we have now in a lot of modern construction, you don't have a way to confine the fire other than water. When in VES, you do, you might have a door. So when people say it's this super high risk maneuver, I don't quite understand because they seem very similar to me. So that's kind of our real direction with Brothers in Battle is trying to remind all of us, myself included, that we signed up for this job to save people from fires and to put fires out and save property. And somewhere along the way that got a little wishy-washy, but maybe, maybe we're on the right path. And then second to that is Searching is searching. It's very difficult. I mean, most of us, I'm sure you guys are the same. The houses that we go into are almost all hoarder houses now, it seems like. And the idea that you can follow a wall throughout an entire house and do a search is just kind of silly. Because uh, sitting in my own house right now, probably the most 
length you would get following a wall is probably about 10 feet without hitting a bed or a couch or a piece of furniture. So the idea that you can just go in the front door, do a left-handed search with two people and search the entire house and that'll be efficient, I don't think that's what really happens on a lot of the fires, at least in my experience. Getting people to wrap their heads around the idea of split searching, if they're unfamiliar with that, with BES, and just trying to understand more about how we search structures. And that's what the Firefighter Rescue Survey is trying to do. We're just trying to learn more about it. And it seems strange to me that we know how many civilians die every year. We know how many firefighters die, how many civilians are injured, how many firefighters are injured. We have no idea how many people we save in fires every year. And to myself and Justin and Nick Ledeen and Shane and all these guys who started this survey, we just said, why don't we know that? That seems like something we should know. We should know how many people we save every year. It'd be like, for me, like if you were a baseball player and you only kept track of how many times you struck out and never kept track of your home runs. We keep statistics on everything. Why? That seems like a pretty important statistic to keep track of. It does. And this is probably not the time or the place. When we meet in person and have a beer, I'll talk about my own conspiracy theories of why we don't know that number. But we don't know it. And so we start this survey just trying to get more information about where do we find people? Who finds them? How long does it take? What kind of search are they doing? And what's been pretty amazing, and now up to this point, we're pretty close to a 1,000 volunteer surveys done on the Firefighter Rescue Survey, is that the guys who are really the best in the fire service, Bob Presslers, Mike Lombardos, these types of guys that have been doing this for 40 years and definitely probably have more knowledge, they've forgotten more about search than I'll ever know, uh, is that this data is backing up what they did and what they continued to do is that you occupy the areas of egress with a hose line and you basically run over victims, which are typically the victims that a lot of fire attack teams find, and you search bedrooms. And if you do those two things, you're covering a great deal of the amount of area where victims are found from NFPA statistics where we know civilians die in bedrooms and paths of egress. And we can kind of learn a little bit more about what we do. It doesn't mean we're going to be able to do that on every fire. It just means that maybe we have a better understanding of what we were doing before when I know definitely for me, it was like a shotgun blast approach. You guys are assigned primary search and you just go in the building and you go everywhere that you can possibly go. And you probably search some areas two or three times without even knowing it. So it's kind of like trying to streamline that a little bit versus just throwing people into the building and trying to pull people out because a lot of us don't have the manpower that like a department like the FDNY does, where they can fill a building with firemen, they're going to find everyone. Like nobody pulls more victims out than the FDNY because they flood the building with people. But a lot of us, if you're sending four people inside, you don't have that option. Like you have to be more efficient in your search. And so for the suburban and rural areas, like how do we, with a limited number of people, put the fire out, try to get some ventilation and try to get search done? How do we make that happen? So, yeah, I'm rambling a little bit. You guys got to get me back on track. No, 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 that's perfect. I was going to add something to this. So VES, you mentioned having come across some opposition in your teaching, and certainly we know about this as well. 
It's just for our department, it's something we haven't really considered or sat around and talked about doing. It's one of those things where if somebody's in, we're going to go get them. Well, what about the cases where somebody's not been reported and they might be in? What about the instances where we are unsure of victims or... It's uh, three in the morning and two cars are outside and we don't know. Yeah, but we can apply common sense. And the thing is, with VES, it gives you kind of a roadmap as opposed to, like you said, throwing... Okay, FDNY throws guys, they're going to find them. They're going to search everything. You throw four people, are you going to make them search the entire house? Or are you going to try and figure out a way to apply common sense, focus in on areas where they most likely will find victims? And thanks to things like the Firefighter Rescue Survey, now we're getting numbers and data. This is where people are commonly found between this time and this time. We have these hard numbers, so now we can look at a building and and now we have to apply other skills like recognizing what type of building it is, what time of day it is, do we expect people in there, and if so, where would they most likely be? And we have to figure all of this out from the exterior unless we pre-planned and gone into those buildings and when are in non-emergency situations. But right now when there's a fire, we have a method that we can use and we say that rescue and life safety is our number one priority. It's the number one mission of the entire fire service. It's in every textbook. Now we have a method of going in and doing the very thing that we signed up to do and we have a better way of doing it. Will it work every time? No, but is it better than just blindly going into every structure the exact same way? Absolutely. Well, I think somewhere along the way that life safety thing got changed from their life to our life. We decided that number one's life safety, and I'll be honest, in my uh, fire academy, that's kind of what it seemed like to me. It seemed like it was 90% to 10%. That life safety, instant stabilization, and environmental protection, life safety seemed like it was 90% for the firefighter and 10% for them. Well, because they say if you're hurt or taken out of the game or injured or or you die, who are you going to help? I, I get that and understand that. But yeah. coming off that a little bit, Brian comes to Pampa, Texas. I say, hey, Brian, how do we instill VES? We're a small department. We have six guys minimum staff, three on two engines, working structure fire. You got an equipment operator who stays with the truck, a captain and a firefighter. On both engines. How do we instill VES? Oh, by the way, we have four chiefs that usually show up. Yeah, you know, we have those same areas where in my department, we could be fighting a fire in a fairly urban area at one minute and be have an engine company with three people on scene for 10 minutes by themselves in another part of the area. So that's just kind of where I'm stuck in between this like mix of urban, suburban and rural. But I really feel like VES is a prime tactic for low manpower areas. And maybe it's you're not doing a VES for any survivable space all the time. And maybe it's one of those scenarios where someone is in the yard saying someone is trapped in that room and you have three people and the engineer ends up pulling the line, pumping it and doing a transitional attack while the other two members are going in a window. Like, that's what I see at times in our outlying engine companies that might happen. Or maybe you have a structure that's 75% gone, and you know that you're not going to be able to put that fire out with the water you have and the manpower that you have, but you have one room that may be survivable, and you break the window and you see. If you can do a search, well, at least you got that whole room. The house is going to burn down. You're not saving it. 
but you've got three people. Maybe you can get one room searched, and if you can get that one room searched and no one was there, well, you know, you probably didn't lose a whole lot, but you just never know. Like, those reports of people being inside or not are so wishy-washy, and you can definitely see that in our survey. And I just had a fire on Christmas Day, a very small fire, and it was in a detached garage, and the woman who was there she came up to me. I was going to kind of go between this garage and the house and get a look at the seaside. And she goes, everyone is out of the house. Oh, except my son. I think he's still in the house. And like this fire wasn't even in her residence. It was on the exterior of her garage. And she did not know who was inside the house and who was not. Because we give people too much credit sometimes when we show up and they go, everyone's out. That's probably the first fire that they've ever experienced in their entire life. And we take their word for it, you know, and I know departments that won't even assign a primary search if someone says everyone is out until the fire is out. And I just cannot wrap my head around it because definitely on a weekly basis around the country, you see a story of someone forgot the nephew was home sleeping or the next door neighbor kid was staying the night or whatever. And people's information is not exactly correct. I mean, myself, I've done a VES where someone's standing at a window and saying, "My," and it was a single wide trailer, and I went in there, and he wasn't there. And so it's that thing of, like, we take their word for it when they say there's someone in a specific area, and we search that area first. But when they say everyone is out, we don't really know that. And so when you take that low staff, like you're saying, you got one engine company and three people, if there's someone out there saying there's someone in that room and this, you know this house is the goner anyway, maybe you can affect a VES and then you try to protect exposures or whatever. But again, it's going back to that life safety first. Now, sometimes you might show up and you have a one-room fire and maybe the best thing that you can do is put that fire out and then try to get your search afterwards. So I'm definitely not a proponent of VES has to be done at every fire, but we should be definitely thinking about it at every fire. And again, I've taught in areas where there was one station, all volunteer department to urban areas. And I think VES is cut out for everyone. It just depends on what situation you use it in. The urban areas, they might do VES on every fire they go to. And likely that's probably due to building construction. The rural areas, it might be your one shot to save somebody in the only savable part of that house before it burns down. And we kind of just have to juggle those things. So it doesn't have to happen at every fire, but we should be definitely thinking about it at every fire. And that's one thing in the fire service also, and I'm sure you've seen it, is BES is a tool for the tool bag. You know, you've got this tool bag full of tactics and strategies that you can pull out and you can use. And there's so many times in the fire service where people see black and white. They're like, either we do it all the time or we don't do it, period. There's so many times where that we're BES every single time or we don't ever. We positive pressure every fire or we vertical vent every fire. We've got, and I know some guys in the fire service, they have like, it's like a one track mine. It's either all or none. I can't be like, okay, I want a smooth bore here and a fog nozzle here. They're like, nope, all or none. <laughs> right. Can't yeah. do it. Brain right. cannot handle it. Yeah, for sure. And, and it creates difficult conversations because skills I think are very global and strategy and tactics are very local. You know, so it's hard for us in different areas of the country to talk strategies and tactics sometimes because we're so different. 
in our responses, our areas and everything. But the skill part of it, we should all adopt. There shouldn't be a, a real difference between how a fireman in New York does a VES to how I do a VES in BFE, Idaho. As far as the skill goes, we should be the same. When we decide to deploy that skill, might be a little bit different. But the skill side of it, we should all be adapting a lot of the same skills. It's just when do we use them and when do we don't? That's where we get caught up all the time. We have these massive like social media arguments that never end well and no one's mind ever gets changed. And it's just like, it's because we work in different areas and that's fine, but at least we should be able to agree on how to perform the skill itself. That's really, uh, you know, with Brothers in Battle, our objective is to be like, here's the VES skill. Here's what can happen. Now you go decide when you do it and when you don't. But don't write it off just because you've traditionally not done it. And don't do it at every fire just because you went to one class. It's like, here it is. Now take it back to your department and be like, okay, this is when we're going to use this, this is when we're not. But the skill part of it should be the same. It's a tool for the tool bag. It's like forcing a door. I think any tactic that you bring to your department, if you want them to consider it, you have to bring the conversation up. You have to have that conversation. You can't just show up, hey, I learned this cool new thing. Check it out. Oh, awesome. What's for supper? You know, you really want to get everybody involved. And, and then you're going to have the guys, apart, we're going to yeah. have the guys, you know, they don't care. They right. don't care what new tactic or new toy or old tactic or anything that's being brought back. They don't, they just really don't care. They don't want to be involved. They, you're messing up their feng shui. They don't like it. <laughs> so no matter what you do, they're going to be against it. You can't do anything really about that, but at least you can work with your crew because hopefully your crew has some respect for what you're saying, for your ideas. Hopefully they give you the time of day to voice that. So, yeah, I think at least on a crew level, you can try and bring some of these back or say, hey, I think we need to look at VES and maybe make it a priority or maybe something that we consider, like you said, at every fire. Maybe we haven't done that before, but now we can. And here's why. And if you think we shouldn't, I mean, all right, now it's your turn. You go ahead and tell me why. And then I will come back and rebut. And and that's that whole deal. Now, once you bring that argument online... You're opening a can of worms. Oh, yeah, for sure. But, I mean, we're all one fire away from having our opinions changed on a certain tactic. No, definitely. You know what I mean? Like, you might say, well, we don't do VES, and then you have a fire where someone's screaming that their kid's in there, and now it's too late. And now your mind gets changed forever on that thing. So the conversation is important. I think starting at the crew level is good because if you can create buy-in with your crew – Maybe that can affect another crew. Maybe that can start to, you know, you kind of build this grassroots thing. And that just, again, takes conversation. It takes drilling on it. And you hope it doesn't come from a fire where something terrible happens. And then you decide we really screwed this up. I mean, that's a learning experience, of course, but that's the last one that I want. Yep. I'd rather have the difficult conversations of trying to you know, present a certain tactic or an idea or whatever and work through it as a crew and try it out. Maybe we accept it, maybe we don't. But the last place that I like to learn those things is on scene of an incident because that means we probably really screwed something up. And I've definitely done that myself, so. Yeah, the emergency scene is one place you do not want to find out that you were lacking in some skill or 
you completely blew something off that you shouldn't have. But it happens to all of us. I mean, we've all learned that with one thing or another. Uh, I mean, probably the majority of the things that I talk about are probably stuff that I've learned from an incident that I've screwed up, but you try to be as prepared as you can. Right. You can't, you won't get everything right. And I think the thing is we get lucky. Well, I wouldn't even say we get lucky. I would say the majority of incidents that we run are not the worst runs that we, you know, there's one that pops up that just completely blindsides you. Or maybe you've prepared for it, but there's some factors that you didn't consider because the immensity of the incident. So there's definitely that. I think it's great whenever we do learn from our mistakes, when we make our mistakes on fires where everything ended well, both for the public and for the fire service. I haven't myself personally gone through anything where somebody has died as a result of mine or my crew's actions or possibly, you know, I have guys that have been on the fire department for a long time who can tell me stories where, yeah, I beat myself up over this for a long time. And I still think about this one moment, you know? So yeah, I'm hoping that doesn't happen to me. Maybe it will. I'm not sure. But in the meantime, I'm going to be doing my best to hear from as many people as I can, learn as many tactics and strategies as I can, learn as many skills as I can, and definitely keep sharp on those skills as much as I can as a way of hopefully preventing that. Yeah, and, and getting back to just the search talk in general, I had a fire not too long ago where I kind of underperformed for sure in the search category. And, and we talk about search. We haven't, a lot of times I've noticed we haven't spent a lot of time understanding building layouts. We preach that heavily in Brothers in Battles, like looking at the outside of our structures and being able to tell where are the bedrooms, where are the bathrooms, where's the kitchen, where's the living room, all those things. Because for a lot of us, our areas are fairly predictable because we go in them all the time. Every time we go into a house on a medical call or to change smoke detector batteries or whatever, that is a search drill, right? And sometimes it happens after the call if it's a serious one, like a serious medical. And sometimes it happens during while we're walking around changing somebody's smoke detector batteries. But we try to instill looking at the outside of that house, trying to predict the layout, and then going inside and seeing if we're right. One of my problems has been I've been practicing skills for years and trying to get really fast at them, like masking up specifically. I'm under 10 seconds masking up consistently now. I've pared it down to that. But what I have problem with is I mask up very fast and then I want to run into the house very fast. <laughs> and so I don't do a very good size up that we preach for my search. And so I noticed myself doing that a lot. So we had a fire. It was right after I injured my hand this summer and had uh, right before I got surgery, we had a fire and we got assigned primary search and I was at the front of the building and I got masked up really quick and i actually took time to like look at the house and be like okay bedroom living room bonus room okay and i was like oh i got this our three-man engine goes to the front door i went left the captain and the driver went right i go left i'm searching i'm falling i'm kind of falling the wall behind the couch a little bit i come around i'm searching the couch i see the tv i see another couch I'm searching all this area, and when I had done my size up, I'd seen 
a window on the Alpha Bravo corner. And so I'm kind of anticipating there being a room. So I kind of searched the living room, and we had reports there were two dogs, not people, but two dogs uh, still in the house. And I get to this little hallway, and there's a bathroom in front of me, and then split bedrooms. So I go to the bedroom on the left, and I'm looking for the window that I saw on the Alpha Bravo corner, right? Because I'm like, there's a window there. That's This is where I should be. And I get to the bed, go in the room, shut the door behind me, search the bed, and I'm reaching on the wall trying to find the window, and there's no window. And I'm like, what the fuck? Where is this window at? And I'm looking around, and I'm like getting down, looking under the smoke, and I'm like, finish the rest of my search in my room and i'm like something is wrong here i'm like there should have been a window on that wall and there was no window and i go back out in the hallway and the other driver he's like oh i think we've got it all clear the captain had gone up and searched the bonus room and the driver and i had searched the first floor and we go back out and we're like oh it's all clear uh no dogs and then the truck company is in there doing the secondary, and I see them. I'm taking my mask off to win the new assignment, and I see them bring the two dogs out. And I'm like, oh, what the fuck happened? Like, and I just feel this terrible sinking feeling. Luckily, the two dogs lived. And I, I love dogs, but, I mean, it's, it's still horrible. But what had happened is when I went left and I found the TV and the other couch, I cut the corner. And I didn't hit the corner of the living room. And what was in the corner of that living room was a little office nook, which is where the window on the Alpha Bravo's corner that I saw from the exterior was. And guess where the two dogs were? Right by that window. Right there. So it's one of those things of like, search is definitely my passion. And it's probably the the fireground thing I think about the most. But I'm never going to be a master of it. And I'm definitely not some kind of guru or anything like that. Like, I have to work on this every day. And that's just an example of like, I didn't, you know, you got to hit the corners of the room. I did not hit the corner of that room. And that's where the two victims' dogs were. And that's a terrible feeling. And luckily they lived. But it just goes to show how difficult search can be is even when I took the time to slow down and to size up the exterior of the house that I talk about in classes that I practice all the time doesn't mean it's going to go perfectly. So like any excuse of like, no, we'll just, we're just going to go in and search for the areas where the fire isn't. Or like, we're just going to go in and search wherever we can. Uh, I don't think that's good enough because even when we try really hard to do things the best that we can, there's still these little things that happen. So it's always that motivation to be like, I got to understand my building now. It's better. I got to, what I should have done is realized there's no window on that wall. And I should have went out of that room and go where the room that has the window and went back and found that nook where that window was. But I, I didn't do that. I go, Oh, that's kind of weird. I wonder what happened there. And then it ended up being that I missed an entire room on my search. So we can really not, we can't dedicate enough time or enough people to performing primary searches, uh, training on them, assigning quick secondary searches right after the primary is done, and assigning as many people as we can. Uh, Justin McWilliams, who teaches with us, always says, you know, you can't assign too many people to a primary search. But if we have that limited manpower, that just means more often than not, we have to do double the work to try and accomplish that task because we might only get two people. We don't get four people or six people or whatever to do that same search. So 
it's always something to train on. If you're ever at the station and you're like, oh, I don't know what to do, like do a search drill. Look do some building, search training. Like, yeah, and don't just go in the bay and pull your hood over your face and do some kind of search drill because I know for me, that's what that happened to me is that, you know, you do the whole, I'm sure everybody's done it right. You pull your nest or your uh, hood down over your face piece, right? And you do a search. And what do you immediately do? You, you close try to, your eyes. Yeah. <laughs> you Actually, I try eyes. to cheat. I try to find anywhere that I can, I can kind of see out of. Well, that's good. You're probably better than me then. <laughs> uh, I would always close my eyes because I'm like, well, I can't see shit. And what happens as soon as you close your eyes? You're like moving in slow motion, right? And if you guys have seen, uh, that's forming a bad habit too. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. For your bird box searching. Bird box, right? If you've seen Bird Box on Netflix, like you move in slow motion, and it's forming those training scars to where on a real fire, your eyes are everything. If you can get your face on the floor and see four inches of visibility, that means everything. I mean, I, I learned. I knew that already, but a story that Mark Wesseldine told me from, he was a longtime fireman in the FDNY. He went in the front door of a building and he had about four inches of visibility on the floor and he put his face on the floor and he saw a hand floating in the air and he raced over to it and found a kid on the couch and he reached, pulled the kid down to the floor, reached up again, found another kid. They ended up saving, I can't remember, sorry, Mark, it was either three or four kids in that same area just from getting his face down to the floor and looking across the room and like when we cover our face with our hood all the time doing search drills we are actually making that skill uh, less effective because i have this had this training scar of like i'm going to an actual fire and it sounds ridiculous but i w- would catch myself with my eyes closed and you go, that is not, <laughs> like, that is not good. That is not good on a lot of levels. That's not good for a search. That's not good for looking at fire condition. But that was all built into every search drill I had done up until that point in my career had been zero visibility. I had a hood pulled over my face, and I couldn't see anything, so I just closed my eyes because what's the point of looking at my face piece from the inside out? And then I go on a real fire and I'd be like, open your eyes, open your eyes, open your eyes. And so that's another thing we, you know, like, I think, I honestly think it's better to do a search drill where you have perfect visibility and you try to be quick and cover the entire area than it is to do one in zero visibility. Because again, your eyes are such a key, your flashlights are such a key, the tick is such a huge part of an effective search that if we do anything to diminish those, uh, we're kind of doing ourselves and the people we're looking for a disservice. All right, Brian, let's talk about something near and dear to you, near and dear to all of us, really. I mean, some people are for it, some people are against it. I know you're against it, but survivability profiling. All right, so uh, what I know about survivability profiling, it was kind of coined by uh, Stephen Marsar, who was an officer in the FDNY. And I believe, and I apologize if this is wrong, and it's definitely not an attack on Captain Marsar at all, but he had looked at line of duty deaths in the FDNY compared to civilian fatalities at the same fires and had seen that there were a lot of firefighters dying at fires where there were not civilians dying. And so this kind of idea of survivability profiling that we'd be able to look at the from the exterior of a building and kind of decide whether or not that was survivable. It probably, I'm, 
certain it was with the best of intentions when it got created, but of kind of what it happens is everyone's kind of subjective on that and survivable to some people might not be survivable to other people and vice versa. So at Brothers in Battle, we definitely take the approach of search profiling over survivability profiling. And instead of looking at a building that's on fire from the exterior and saying no one can survive that, we definitely take into account our equipment, you know, our skills, the resources that we have and say, where can we get into that building with all of those resources, all of our equipment, all of our skills and search and leave the survivability part up to God. Brothers in Battle makes no, pulls no punches about being a somewhat spiritual organization. We all kind of have the same mindset. And so we really feel that it is our calling as firemen that we are the go-betweens between people and their problems. So when we are outside of a building that's on fire, the last people that we are really thinking about is ourselves. We're really thinking about who could potentially be trapped in there and what can I do for them, whether that's putting out the fire or searching the building. So the problem with survivability profiling is it's, like I said earlier, it's so subjective and what some people deem as unsurvivable, other people's would deem as survivable. And how do you get a good read on that? And so we've been, hopefully, given the skills, hopefully we've been given thousands of dollars worth of equipment that the public pays for us to have, whether you're volunteer usually or paid, that we can go guarantee because we really don't know what we don't know. You cannot see the inside of that building. I can't see the inside. Nobody else can until we get in there and actually search it. Now, there are times where there is nowhere to search. Fire's blowing out of every window in a place, and it's just, and that is the time where maybe we're not going in. But if there's one room, one window that doesn't have pressurized smoke and fire or whatever coming out of it, that we can at least break the window and look, why wouldn't the departments that don't do any interior structural firefighting whatsoever? In the middle of the mountains in Idaho, one station, they don't do any interior firefighting, but at least they can force a door or layout or break a window and see if there's someone right there that they can call to. Like, why wouldn't we be doing the same thing when we, a lot of us have much more resources compared to literally two guys on probably an army surplus fire truck. I just don't understand why we would stand in the front yard and make that decision. We have everything within our grasp to make a difference for someone. And if it turns out that you break the window that you thought was searchable and fire comes out and you can't go in, well, at least we tried everything that we could. Because the last thing that I want to have happen is that there was something that I could have done and I chose not to do it. The last thing that I want to do is die in a fire. I have no intentions of ever dying in a structure fire. I <laughs> I just don't want to. There's too many rocks I have to pick up or whatever. That's you know, right. Like, <laughs> there's too many things that I want to do with my kids, my wife. There's too many great things in this life to want to die in a fire. But I don't know if I could live with myself knowing that there was something that I could have done for someone else and I didn't do it. It's that kind of sacrificial mindset of, for me, it comes from my faith in Jesus. So it's like, to me, it's a no question. It's a no brainer. Like that is what I try to structure my entire life around. So when it comes to sacrificing yourself for a stranger, it's non-question. But when you talk about it in 
what may be more practical reasons for other people is you just don't know. There's so many times we see, we don't know if there's a door closed in that building and there's survival space. We see pictures of, you know, fires that look like fires in the middle of the night. It looks like fires coming out everywhere. And then you pull a live victim out and you realize the smoke layering is three feet off of the floor in much of the building. There's just so many things that we cannot tell from the exterior that we, it is our duty to try and do everything we can to at least check, to at least see, can we break a window? Can we knock a little bit of fire and go in there and do a search? I truly believe that survivability profiling had the best fires where civilians are not dying, but it just gets really wishy-washy when it's so difficult to tell from the exterior. So like anything else with our mindset, with our tactics, it's a lot easier to be over-prepared and then pump the brakes than it is to kind of fall back on our heels, go, this fire is defensive, and then someone comes around the corner and is screaming, my kid is stuck in there, and now we have to go into like ultra-aggressive mode. So if we kind of stay on that tip of the spear as far as preparedness, ready to do you know, whatever it takes to get in there and search an area, we're going to be better for it. I just think it's irresponsible of us to stand on the outside with all this equipment and all this training that we've been given and make decisions that literally could be life or death for people on the inside. Yeah, standing out in the front yard and making the decision if somebody's going to survive or not, that's not our job. Our job isn't there to, to sit there. They can crunch the numbers in some lab somewhere. We're going to be there to do the work. Whenever people are trying to come up with the tactics, and I mean, I understand no line of duty death's good. But unfortunately, it's going to happen. I mean, it's going to happen. If you do every single thing correctly in this job, something will kill you. I mean, it can happen. Not saying it will, but I mean, you can literally do everything right where they couldn't find one single thing that you did wrong, and then something happens. Unfortunately, it happens to guys all the time. I'm not ever going to Monday morning quarterback a firefighter who who's on a scene where somehow, because they got a stinking phone in their hands and they're recording it, I'm not going to question what he made, the decision he made. We all do things for crazy reasons. The human beings do things for crazy reasons. The guys who were on the ground floor at 9-11, I mean, Chief run in there and he said, the building's coming down. And the command staff looked at him and said, we ain't leaving our guys. We do crazy things for our brothers. And when we have this culture of putting ourselves before the citizens that give us our pay and more than that, I didn't get in this job for myself. I got in this job for them. I wanted to help people. Somehow, some way, it become about me. They're like, oh, we don't want you getting hurt. I mean, your life is more important than their life. You didn't start the fire, so there's no need for you to go crazy. But thats I don't believe in that at all. I, I believe that line-of-duty deaths are going to happen. You can't prevent everything. But I understand risk management. But I also understand that I'm going to put them first. And that's brothers in battle. That's what y'all are about, putting them first. Yeah, and that's part of the deal, too, of trying to figure out, like, how many people we save. I know we save way more people than firefighters die in the line of duty. There's no question. We don't know the exact number, but I know it's more than our line of duty deaths. And as terrible as line of duty deaths are, and being the chaplain of my fire department, I've spoke at firefighter funerals. I've been to firefighter funerals, and... 
they're heartbreaking. But when you look back at like what a successful life is, it's always a life that's lived in service of others, whether it's your family or strangers or whatever. And that's what the fire service is. And so somewhere along the way, when we became most important, I think sometimes for me, I, it's when I talk to chief officers. And if I ask a chief officer, what's your job? What's the most important thing to you? And if they have an answer that it's that all my guys get home safe, I know that that chief and I are not going to align on our mentality the answer that I'm looking for is I'm going to do everything I can and give you all the resources I can that you can try to fulfill the demands of what it is to be a fireman. That's the chief that I'm going to go, I know he doesn't want me to die in a fire, but he's going to give me everything that I possibly need to do my job. And that's really the difference. I understand that it, probably a chief's worst nightmare is to have to go to a fireman's home and tell their significant other that they died in the line of duty. Talk about like all time horrible things to have to do, but that's part of the job. That's why you're a chief. The rest of the time, there's unknown, you know, however many people are where you work, all of those people are depending on us to do the job that they, and pay is just a part of it. It's not, it's way more than pay. It's what a, the calling of a fireman is to be. No one calls us when they're having a good day. That's obvious. And their problem really is their problem. They would not call 911 if they could handle it themselves. Like, we have to remember that. Like, I do not call 911 for fun. Yeah. I've just like, been hey, like, guys, hey, how's up? it going? Yeah. Can you send the fireman over? Yeah, there's some problem that I have that has gone beyond my capabilities. And so that's why I think we have to take ownership of that is because they wouldn't call if they could handle it. They can't handle it. And now we are stepping in and now it is our problem because we are the only ones that are coming and it's up to us to fix it. And the citizens are the reason why we're here. That's why we're here. I'm here for the citizens. I'm here for my brother next to me and we risk a lot to save a lot. We've heard it a thousand times. It's kind of the, the, the catch thing, you know, risk a lot to save a lot. Everybody focuses on the second and third part of that Yeah. Yep. I and, think. And I'm not saying everybody. I'm generalizing. I generalizing say. myself, I think that whenever people think of that, they think of, you know, we'll risk our own lives for civilian lives. That's what I think whenever I, I hear it. But I wonder how many people actually believe that. you got to listen to it on the, like, I will risk a lot to save a lot if it comes over the radio that there's something worth risking my life for. Yeah. If not, eh, I'll think about it. It's one of those things, again, where I have no intentions of dying in a fire. But if that were to happen, hopefully I've explained to my wife and my kids and my family that this is my calling and I was putting myself on the line for other people. And that's not necessarily going to take the pain away, of course, but there's something to that. It's all on how, what do we define a successful life to be? Is it living until you're 95 and you can't do anything for yourself or is it living for a higher purpose? And uh, I definitely think it's living for a higher purpose, and that is all wrapped into the mentality of what is a fireman. Definitely. So I think we're going to wrap up the interview. I want you to think of yourself back when you first started and maybe some of the guys that you've seen that were at that level when you traveled around the country teaching 
what would you like to tell that person right now about search or about our job? Um, what is one thing you'd like to leave with them? Just try to gravitate towards people who you want to emulate. One of the best pieces of advice I ever heard came from a Navy SEAL, actually. And of course, I can't remember his name. Oh, I'll think of it. But he basically said, you want to find a person that is in a position above you that you want to emulate. You want to find someone who does the same job that you do, that does it better than you, that you want to emulate. And you want to find someone who does the job you used to do better than you did it, that you want to look to. And so there's a lot of times if you're very passionate about the fire service, so you can feel super alone kind of in your quest of being a good fireman. But today with social media, with all these things, there's so many ways to reach out and find those mentors. That is literally the only reason why I'm on this podcast right now is that at some point I reached out to Cody Trestrail and was like, hey man, we're doing the same thing. And if it wasn't for that, we wouldn't be sitting here right now. So reach out to those people that you see and that you want to emulate and just know that, you know, there's always somebody out there that thinks the same way you do. So when you're in a department where it feels like everyone may be against you or whatever, just realize patience and time heals a lot of things. And sometimes it's just a matter of time before one other person comes in and thinks the same way you do. You know, sometimes you can't change the people that are already there that are above you, but the new people coming in, take an active role in mentorship. Maybe you didn't have a mentor. That doesn't matter. Maybe you can be a mentor to someone else because at least you know how not to do it. Exactly. Because right? you didn't have one. So maybe that new person coming in, you can be a mentor to them. And so you got two years on or whatever more than them. That's not a lot, but at least it's something. And then you can start to build kind of this wave of people that are kind of thinking the same way you are. So it's never hopeless. You always just have to look to where are the opportunities that I can allow to people that it can help keep that fire stoked in me. And then hopefully maybe someday I can return it to them and we can just keep moving forward. Yep, water boils from the bottom, man. So you get that influence with the younger guys, you're eventually going to force some of the older heads to do something right wrong or indifferent all right man it's been great yeah i'm glad you accepted to do this oh man i, I like i said i've listened to i just got caught up i listened uh the other day i listened to jim and uh dan's podcast and then today i listened to bobby's so i'm all caught up now now you get to listen to yours there you go man brian the ogre olson ladies and gentlemen what an awesome episode what do you think steven Oh, I thought it was great. I am super humbled that he decided to come on the show. We're making this big deal about him, or I am because of my man crush, I guess, but like Cody is so keen to remind me all the time about all of our guests, who a lot of them are superstars, and some of them were superstars that you didn't know were superstars. They're all firefighters, just like us. They do the job just like us. They put their pants on one leg at a time, but these dudes are knowledgeable, and it's great coming from a small department like ours and uh, listening to guys who are plugged into the fire service and listen to what they have to talk about. Like we alluded to in the intro, this podcast has given us the avenue to be able to speak to these guys and listen to what they've got to say. And we learn so much from our, each and every one of our guests. And what's really cool is Brian's from a small department just like us. So he understands very well 
what it's like to show up on a scene with less manpower than a lot of people. Anyway, guys, we appreciate you listening to the Do Work Podcast. Hit us up on social media. also want to give a quick shout-out to Fourth Alarm Customs. Those guys are awesome. They made us a shield and some glove straps that we're going to put to good use. Just want to hit them up. Also, I want to give a shout-out to Smoothbore Cartel. Definitely check those guys out. Definitely get on uh, Engine Company Resurrections and check those dudes out. Yep, and go to thefirehousetribune.com. Check out the great articles over there. Listen to other podcasts like Robbie over at uh, Average Jake Firefighter. And he has a blog as well with tons of great articles. One more podcast you should check out is the Five Alarm Task Force. Tons of guests, lots of episodes. If you guys are in Texas anytime in April, check out Box Alarm Fire Academy. Hosted by FD Tactics. Those guys are awesome. Uh, They're going to have Anthony Avio down here. Uh, giving a good presentation, and then they're going to have multiple tracks that you can follow. So definitely check them out, and uh, you'll see us there. So give us a shout-out. We'll drink a beer. And one more thing, make sure to check out the Deep South Fire Conference. That's put on by OJ Kaloje, Clay McGee, Kaloje. a bunch of folks from the Magic City Truck Academy. Uh, you'll also, if you go, you won't see us, but you'll see Bobby Reichart from one of our previous episodes. You'll get to hang out with him. Make sure to bust his balls while, while y'all are up there. For sure. He likes it. Oh, yeah. He's he's a glutton for punishment. Yep. All right. Well, this concludes this episode. Hopefully, you guys had a good time listening to us ramble and then hearing uh, Brian speak. So, always. Know your trade. Do your job. Do work. See you guys.